Every Christian has to tune his attitude to Christ, not their hero. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to the Recovering Hypocrite Podcast. I am, as always, your host and the chief recovering hypocrite around these parts, Noel Jesse Hakenen. And just recently, I was teaching through the Galatians at the church that I have an honor of serving as one of the pastors. And I came across this, this poignant verse in Galatians 5.15, uh, where it says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. And after reading that verse, I remembered that there was a book by a guy named Alexander Strzok that is based on this passage. It's called, If You Bite and Devour One Another. So I went onto Amazon because I looked for it on my shelf and I was like, gosh, do I have a copy of this on my shelf? And I couldn't find it because I was at my home office. So I went on Amazon and thought, did I buy an ebook copy? And it turned out I've bought five copies of that over the course of the last number of years. I think I keep giving them away. So I keep having to buy myself another copy. So I don't even have a current copy. I'm going to order another one. But then I ran into Alex at a conference recently and I was like, we have to talk about this. And so Alex, I just want to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks for jumping on with me. Yes, no. We go back a long ways, don't we? <laughs> yes, we do. And you remember one of our first meetings? Our first meeting was at your house, and we went out for lasagna. At, at Romano's, very famous <laughs> restaurant. We had a great time. We did. In fact, that's, uh, you know, here's one of the things. Uh, I, I'm gonna Actually, I'm going to save it for a second, because what I love to do is I love to start these podcasts with three publicly available pieces of information about someone. And I'm actually going to break my own rules and only give two, because then I want to give a piece of information nobody knows, which you just teed up. Uh, the first publicly available piece of information is that you are most well known for your book on biblical eldership. And what's interesting is that was, I, I think, your first book, but you have almost written more extensively about tone and conflict and the stuff that we're going to talk about today than you've even written about eldership. I'm not sure if that's true, but it that seems is like true. you have. Yeah. And that so we'll, we'll get into that in a second. So could you tell me, do you happen to know, and I know this, it's not bragging if it's true. Do you happen to know by any chance how many copies of biblical eldership have sold? Yes, it's been over 250,000 copies, and it's in 24 languages. That's absolutely astonishing. And anywhere I go and I talk to people about eldership, your book is the first thing that they mentioned. And so I do want to put up a little plug out there. You, you say you're working on a second edition of this book. You want to quickly uh, tell us about that? Yes, it's a complete and total rewrite. It's 30 years old, needs to be brought up to date. I think I've learned a lot more over 30 years, and I answer different questions, and I've really beefed up the exegetical. The one unique thing about biblical eldership, it takes you through every single passage carefully and accurately, just staying with the text. And that's one of the things I love about your style of writing, and even in the book, which we'll get into in a second, if you bite and devour one another, you're not as 
terribly concerned with you know precisely applying this in everyone's situation as much as you are about carefully working through the text and allowing people to then take that and apply it to their principles. So anyway, we're going to get distracted on that. Number two, publicly available piece of information. For you were a an elder, and I'm not sure if you still are an elder in the same church for over 40 years in Littleton, Colorado. How many years have you been? Are you still an elder on that team? I've been at Littleton Bible Chapel for 52 years. And I am not an elder. We had a wonderful group of men we trained. I was the second generation of elders. And now we have the third generation. They're doing a great job. And that allows me now, I'm also 77 years of age. And I have other things to do before I uh, get buried. And so <laughs> 10 years ago, I stepped down. And I try to be a help. I try not to be a hindrance to the men. In fact, I told them, if I'm a hindrance, lean me over and kick me as hard as you can in the backside. I'm here to help. You men are in charge. I'll tell you, one of my co-pastors is one of the founding guys who helped plant our church in 1977, and he is 70 years old. He is still on the team with us today, and he modeled that sort of transition, and it's the same sort of thing that I'd like to do someday. So my third piece of information is not publicly known, and this is where I'm breaking my rule, because I wanted to publicly say that you, to me, Alex, have been the definition of the word hospitality from the moment we met. I wrote you an email out of the blue, and this was, I don't know how many years ago this was. It has to be almost 15 years. I don't know how long, 10, 15, 15 a while. Yeah. yeah. And I wrote you an email and you quickly responded and, and we, we interacted. And then I said, Hey, I'm going to be in Colorado. And you said, please come to my home. And I came to your home and you threw open your arms on your porch and you said, beloved, you, you gave me a hug and you brought me into your home and you introduced me to your wife and you took me out to eat. You wouldn't let me pay. And, and you have sent me books over time. And I have watched you live the idea of, of being a lover of strangers because I was a stranger and how that hospitality being a lover of stranger makes people your friends. And so I, I want to be you when I grow up, when it comes to hospitality. So, oh, so we'll just, we'll just leave it there. <laughs> so, so now would you give us three pieces of information about yourself that maybe people don't know as well? Well, I um, love going to Glenwood Springs, the hot springs pool in, in Colorado with my wife and, uh, we have sometimes with the children, the grandchildren, it's a marvelous place of relaxation, largest hot springs pool in the world. And uh, we hike along the Colorado River. It's one of our very, very famous places. And I always can tell when I'm, I've been working too hard and I'm under too much stress because I start dreaming in my head, oh, I want to go to the hot springs pool and sit there. It, when, when can you go to a place and sit with your wife for a couple hours face-to-face -face and talk. Well, it's just a beautiful environment. Look it up online and you will see how beautiful it is. Glenwood Springs Hot Springs Pool. So it's it's our getaway place that we love. Another thing is I like hiking and bird watching and I usually take my grandchildren with me. They think I know everything about nature and birds. They'll find <laughs> out someday I don't, but that's always very relaxing to me. All right, so that's number two. What do you got for number three for us? Oh, boy, you really push a guy, don't you? <laughs> yes, I do. 
Yeah, I don't. Well, I'm originally from New Jersey. I lived first 20 years there. So I'm an East Coast boy. But I came out to Colorado for three months. And that was 53 years ago. <laughs> oh, that's wild. And you still don't carry- tell the Lord your plans, by the way. Let him oh, no. them. <laughs> so absolutely true story. When I was a 17 year old, I told the Lord that I would do anything he wanted me to do except two things. I would never be a youth pastor and I would never go to Africa. And within a year and a half, I was in Africa committing myself to a life of ministry and my first full-time gig being a youth pastor. Yep. Yeah. Don't tell the Lord, just listen. <laughs> so I want to dive into this topic at hand, this idea of conflict. And you and I were chatting about this just a little bit earlier, but it sounds like this is a topic that you've been interested in maybe as long as you've been interested in eldership, if not longer. So talk about that, because I know you've written a ton about that. Why is it this idea of conflict in the church kind of sticks in your mind? Well, when I was in my early 20s, I went through a real crisis, and the crisis was this. Now, remember, I did not come from a Christian home. I did not have a Christian upbringing. And when I first became a Christian, I thought all Christians were perfect. I mean, I was just completely idealistic. And after a number of years, it shocked me. It disillusioned me how much Christians fought over nothing. And I went through all the battles, praying with these and thous or the King James or uh, multiple cups at the Lord's Supper or a single cup or unleavened bread or leavened bread, praying with these and thous, all of this. I saw these fights. But what discouraged me was how mean Christians could be and how quickly they were to divide over things really not even in the Bible. That's the sad thing. And so I started in my 20s, and I've done this ever since, when I'm in, in, in question of a subject, I just go through the whole Bible. So I went through the whole New Testament looking for answers to my disillusionment. Why do we fight so much? And what's really important? Well, we didn't have computers in those days. And so by hand, by hand, I wrote out every verse that I thought would help me understand this and understand how Christians should act in uh, conflict and in relationships. Well, it didn't take long. The word kept popping up again and again. And what do you think that word is? It's the word love. And there were four special things I saw in the Gospels, humility, servanthood, brotherly equality, and Christ-like love. Again and again, I went through the epistles over 320 times, the word love is used. And, and tremendous verses like Philippians 2, Colossians 3, 1 Corinthians 13. And so it became very clear to me, they were missing the element of the right spirit of the church which is a Christ-like spirit of humility and love for one another and serving one another. They missed that, arguing over leavened bread and unleavened bread and praying with these and thous. They, that become the focus, and then they totally neglected the love of God. And uh, so then a man gave me a book. This book just confirmed what I was seeing, the moral and spiritual character of the church. The church should radiate the life of Christ, and it should radiate our lives right now. Instead, I just saw a bunch of mean, angry people who were prepared 
to fight for God in the moment over something they were concerned about. They actually missed the message of the Bible. Very easy to do. A man gave me a book, and I, I've recommended, I've given tens of thousands of these away. It was called Brother Indeed, The Life of Robert Chapman. I had, I paid for it. I had a man go to England, rewrite a new biography, and then I took all his research and put it in a nice small book. Robert Chapman was called the Apostle of Love. Spurgeon said, the saintliest man I ever met. He was the spiritual mentor to George Mueller of the orphanages. Robert Chapman was a London lawyer, and he gave up his lawyer job to become a pastor of a little fighting Baptist church. It had gone through three pastors in 18 months. How he turned that church around with his humility and simple teaching and just this, this spirit of Jesus just coming out of him. And so that book confirmed it. This is the right trail. They've missed the spirit of the church. You can find it in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. The Lord says of the church in Ephesus, my, this is a good church. Great doctrine, discipline, sin, hard work, but I've got this against you. You've abandoned the love you once had. And if you do not repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Whoa, was that something? Because many of the churches listening to this right now are Ephesian-like church. They're not full of false teaching. They love good doctrine and good Bible, and they're working hard. But there's a missing element, and it's love for God, love for one another, and love for the lost. All three are, by the way, involved in that, not just love for Christ. So it became, over the years, being clearer and clearer, our local church should radiate with these virtues that Christ has given to us and the apostles have given to us. And that is all tied into this conflict, most of it not over uh, really important doctrines, usually personalities, how to do things, some area of doctrine that is not even in the box of orthodox. In other words, you've got a box, and in that box, you've got to be orthodox. And there's doctrines outside that which aren't, you know, maybe so clear we can disagreement over. They're usually operating outside the box. So much division. It's just terrible. It's not the spirit of Christ. Yeah. And so I've done these different books. One, one of the latest ones I did was I took 1 Corinthians 13, 15 descriptions of love, and just apply it to our teaching and our leading. So that has been a lifelong burden, and you hit the right word, Noel, and that is the word tone. I call it the spirit of the church. It has to be John 13, 34, and 35. Mm -hmm. People will know you're my disciples because you have my love in you. Yeah. You know, uh, you we're talking about the box of orthodoxy at our church. We talk about buckets of belief. And we say that we all, there's a tiny, tiny little bucket that only a few things sit in, and this is Christian orthodoxy. And then there's a slightly larger bucket, and this is, well, this is convictions that our church holds, but you can disagree with those convictions and still be a follower of Christ. And then there's an agree to disagree bucket, which is bigger. And then there's two more buckets ending in a big trash can at the end of stuff that we shouldn't be fighting about it at all. And we say that the stuff in the tiny, tiny bucket is stuff that is salvific pertaining to your salvation, and it is clear in Scripture. And the less salvific something is, 
the less clear it is in scripture, the less we should fight about it. And as you were talking, I was thinking, do you think that Christians are worse at this than the rest of the world? Or is it just more jarring because we're not supposed to be like this? I think it's more jarring. And the issues to us are very dear to us and precious to us. And so we are feeling we are fighting for God. We're fighting for the truth. But I think it hurts more in the Christian community. In the non-Christian community, they just slaughter one another and uh, slander one another. And it's just normal process for them. In fact, they go after each other and they're proud about dividing and slandering and putting people down. You see that in our politics today. It's just a head-on battle. So in the Christian world, it hurts very deeply. We know it shouldn't be. We know it grieves the Lord. We all know that, but it just reminds us that we're not obedient followers, because if you just open your Bible, here's something, no, much more is in the Bible, much more on our behavior, attitudes, and actions than we even realize. And if we just let the Bible talk to us, we'd realize we are operating in the flesh right now. Isn't it interesting? Galatians 5, where he lists the fruits of the Spirit, before that, he lists eight social sins. And that's very interesting. <laughs> eight social sins. And that's fits of anger and hostility and division. And then he lists the fruits of the Spirit. So if you look at these two lists, you know immediately, am I operating in the flesh? Am I operating in the Spirit? Real quick test. Incidentally, over in 2 Corinthians 12, 20, almost that same list of social sins is listed there. Yeah, it's really funny that you mentioned, I literally preached that passage this weekend. And that was, you could have you snipped that. That was exactly how I said at the end, this is it. This is the path. You can tell which path you're walking. It's not a checkbox where you say, oh, am I being loving? Oh, am I being patient? Oh, am I being kind? Or, oh, am I being sexually more? Am I dividing? Am I being envious? You look at what's going on in your life and you know which path you're walking on. It's not a checklist of rules to follow as much as it is a diagnosis of our heart. And then we have to realign our heart. I was reading recently, Steve Cuss in his book, Leadership Anxiety, said, it's not about forcing yourself to love like Jesus. It is increasingly dying to self. And so many people are like, just make yourself love like Jesus. Well, you can't do that. But you can die to self. And as you die to self, like you said, you, you have humility in your life. Then Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, begins to transform you. But the only way you can do that is through the Word of God. It is through, like the psalmist says, letting our roots go down deep in the Lord's instruction. That's true. So in your experience of working churches and talking to Christian leaders over the last 50 years, is it worse now than it was when you first started identifying this stuff in your 20s? Or is this just been a perennial problem and it will be until the Lord's return? Well, it's been a perennial problem, that's for sure. But with the internet today and the entire culture is uh, neurotic and Christians calling each other names, you know, if they don't like it now, you're woke. They don't even know what they're saying. I always tell people when they call you woke, Hey, you're a slanderer. That's worse than being woke because that's the devil's work. Just about every servant of God, every godly man that I know has been called woke publicly. 
I just think the getting on the internet and slandering one another and fighting, and then it's just an attitude in America. is just a paranoia, a meanness of spirit that is developed in this country. Everyone knows it through the Congress. The Congress can hardly do anything. Everyone's so mad at one another. So I think the spirit of the age comes into the church, and I see more and more Christians that are just so full of suspicion of everyone and conspiracies and they watch all these things on television and they're extremists and alarmists and it's not healthy and i I hear a lot of this and uh, it's a misfocus from the gospel and we're getting caught up in the political mud fight that's going on and we're bringing it right into the church in fact, I've had to tell a few Christians, stop watching those TV commentators because they're mean people and they're not even honest people. They speak in these broad generalizations and you're copying them. You're just copying their, oh, yeah. their ugly spirit. Yeah, a friend of mine just recently said that the people in his church seem to be discipled more by cable news and social media than the Bible. Very good. There, I have not thought of that, but that is a really good statement. Yeah, because you're going to be discipled by something. And where where do you spend your time? Where do you put your roots down deep? Where do you get your thoughts? You're saying something very, very important, because I didn't think of it in those terms, but it's exactly it. They're being discipled by unsafe people who are extremists and can't even get the facts. You know, they shout you down, yell you down. Everything's black and white. And if their enemy did anything good, they could never admit it. You know, it's interesting. And you're bringing that into the church. Well, if you think about what you said earlier, earlier you said that one of the reasons it's so jarring when Christians are in conflict like this is because the reason we we have conflict like this is because the issues are very precious to us. And I wonder if some issue, whatever issue it is, becomes very precious to us from a faith perspective. Maybe we're pro-life. Let's just, let's just use that. And we're passionate about being a pro-life follower of Christ. And then someone in the secular world, either on social media or news outlets or whatever, has that same view that we hold precious and dear to us. And yet they carry with it a vitriolic tone, a tone that comes from the world, and they attach it to that truth, then we start to grab the whole thing as if the tone and the vitriol belongs with the truth. And now it becomes part of how we communicate it as well. And I wonder if those things sort of multiply on themselves. Oh, I mean, you're hitting right on the uh, button there. I want to read a verse from 2 Timothy Uh, chapter two. And I would have to say to you that this verse has come to my mind hundreds and hundreds of times. And it says this, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponent with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So that's tone. So a man who taught me tone was Francis Schaeffer. And I saw him debate publicly. I was there at Roosevelt University when he debated Bishop Pike. Schaeffer was going after the man, not the arguments, because you couldn't argue with Bishop Pike. 
he'd just go crazy and yell crazy things out. He went after the man and he went with, here's a really important word. When we're dealing with unsafe people or people who disagree with us, understanding and compassion. And the people know it. We're just, if we're just cursing at them and yelling back, you're going to hell. Well, you're probably not going to win that person. But if you can be level-headed, objective, stay calm, show compassion, understanding of the person. They do not know God. They're just spitting back what they were taught in the university. And you show kindness. You've got some chance of winning that. But I guarantee you, you'll never win them by spitting on them. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've brought this up several times in this podcast and other episodes, but Oz Guinness is another guy who is very good at that. And I don't know if you've spent any time reading any of his stuff, but in his book, Fool's Talk, he, he says that we've lost the art of disagreeing agreeably. I had an opportunity to have dinner with him once uh, with him and a bunch of, you know, there was all these Christian leaders and somehow I got invited and I got an extra ticket and I asked my teenage daughter if she wanted to go with me. And what struck me was his gentleness and his kindness to my daughter. And when everyone else was trying to impress him, he wanted to talk to her and engage her. And I thought, here's a guy who is in the social sphere debating people with this, this, this tone. And you wonder, is he doing it just to win the argument? And then there at the dinner table, I realized this is who he was. And that's what happens. The Christ likeness is, is the Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out. And all parts of our life should be consistent in that. And so when people are arguing online, and they're arguing in these debates in this manner that is an, really an ungodly manner. I mean, the passage you read there just tells us you're not qualified to be an elder in Jesus's church if that's how you argue. And when we do that, we betray that the rest of our life is probably like that too. Our personal lives, the way we treat our family and our neighbors, and that doesn't represent Jesus well at all. Yes, I go back to the 60s with Oz Guinness when he was with Francis Schaeffer in Switzerland, and we listened to his tapes. Wow. Did you ever get a chance to meet him? No, never met him. But I love that beautiful voice of his. Oh, yeah. And here's the thing, sitting down with him, this is a little bit of tangent. It didn't matter what topic somebody brought up in conversation. He was well-read enough to speak to that topic. I've never seen anybody like that. Because most of us, we have to get to a point in the conversation where people are like, huh, I don't really know much about that. I haven't, but almost anything anybody brought, he, could, he would quote authors. And, and he did it in a winsome way. I was just really drawn to him, which is what caused me to start reading his books, was how he was at the dinner table. Well, I'm going to look up that fool's talk. Yeah. So obviously we've kind of talked about broadly, you know, the attitude and tone of a follower of Jesus, but are there specific biblical principles that I'm thinking of young people who are stepping into leadership roles now, they're beginning to take on the mantle that if they could recapture these biblical principles and how they handle people that they disagree with, that you think that this could be transformative in our culture, maybe even lead to a revival or renewal if we changed our posture. Are there specific things that come to mind? Well, specifically Philippians 2, do nothing, do nothing from conceit or selfish ambition. Do nothing, no, 
Instead, in humility, put others before you, have this mind which was in Christ Jesus. And so uh, I like to use the example of the tuning fork. And if you have a tuning fork, so let's say I have a large auditorium with 500 pianos and you tune piano to piano to piano. They're out of tune very rapidly. But if you have one tuning fork and you go bing, and every piano is tuned to that fork, they're going to all be perfectly in tune. Every Christian has to tune his attitude, disposition to Christ, not their hero and that. So Philippians 2 is telling us, tune your attitude to Christ. What is that attitude? Well, we're told humility and self-sacrifice. Humility and self-sacrifice. I think Philippians 2, and remember it was a very good church, but even good churches get into scuffs with one another. I just think we want to challenge people to be Philippians 2 leaders. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant. Well, how can you do that? Well, verse four tells us, let each of you look not only to his own interest, don't be a selfish slob, but also to the interests of others. In other words, think about the other person's advantage. What is he interested in? How can I help him? Not always be thinking about me, 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 myself and I. Look out for number one. You know that. All right. Then the conclusion, have this mindset among yourselves corporately, which is, in, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So uh, that's our mandate. That's how we're to act. And every time we act with conceit and selfish ambition, we just create problems. We cause more conflict. We hurt people. But we have so many texts on this, so many. It's really amazing. Like I said, over 300 verses on love. And it's not just in John. You think of Paul. Paul's a greater writer on love. What sets the tone for 1 Corinthians 13 is 1 Corinthians 12, 31, where he says, let me read it to you here, because sometimes Brother Alex reads these things wrong. <laughs> and I will show you a still more excellent way. Oh, did you see that, No, A more excellent way. It's not spiritual gifts. It's not knowledge. It's not who's the best preacher. That was causing conflict in this troubled church. He says, listen, gentlemen, ladies, I will show you still a more excellent way. The excellent way is the way of love, the path of love, which is Christ-like love. And then he lists 15 descriptions, what it is and what it is not. Notice he lists a number of negative ones, and those negative ones all describe some of their problems, like jealousy. So what's that more excellent way? Well, that's the way we want to go, Yeah, the, the path we want to walk on. You know, I was we're doing this series we're in right now on the fruit of the Spirit. And, and which is why I was doing Galatians five this last weekend. And one of my texts that I get to teach on is patience. And that was terrible when that showed up there, because I always think of myself as the least patient person in the world. <laughs> and I'm the chief of all sinners when it comes to that. But even just understand that what we're called to there is patience. There is long suffering. And when we rank others ahead of ourselves, we're saying I'm willing to suffer for a long time 
for the sake of love. And that is just so countercultural right now. And I think if Christ followers would live like that online, in person, we would just be willing to suffer long, it would change everything. We wouldn't be so quick to fight, that's for sure. Yeah. You know, in fighting, a lot of it is trying to understand the other person. And that's what love does. Let's always understand. So when my children do bad things and someone outside of them goes, oh, these are rotten kids. I don't say that because I love them. And I understand them. This is an area of weakness they have. And we've got years to work on it yet. So love understands the other person and helps them because they understand this is an area of weakness they're, they're struggling with rather than just let the ax fall on their head. And <laughs> well, I mentioned earlier the uh, 70-year-old elder in our church. We were in an elder meeting recently with our younger elders, including a 30-year-old we just recognized recently. And he said, he said, he said, you guys, when Noel was a young elder, he would get up on stage and he would say the most insane things. And he's told me stories about how when I was a young elder, there would be comment cards that people would fill in and drop in the offering bucket, complaining about how bad my teachings were and how terribly I was handling the text. And he would hide those from me as he gently discipled me and trained me. And there even the example of an older elder to a younger elder, um, he could have come out guns a blazing because my theology or my application was off, but instead he cared and loved for me because he had the, like you're saying, that long tail approach. He knew he wanted to take the time with me to get me to that, that place where I could lead. Amen. Well, Alex, we could probably talk about this all day, but we are uh, running out of time. So I'm so thankful for you. If I will, in the show notes, obviously put links to the books that we've talked about today. And I would encourage you guys, get your hands on Alex's stuff. This is a man who lives what he says, and these are not empty uh, words. I, I've seen it in action in his life. So I'm so thankful for you, Alex. Thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, it's my privilege, and we talked about a very important subject today. 